Good morning, church. As you can hear, my cough is completely gone and my voice is fully restored. <laughs> nope, it's not. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> it's wonderful to be here, as per usual. It is, uh, it's an honor to uh, be able to meet everybody here in the house of the Lord, and even more of an honor to be able to share the good news of the gospel. Uh, we'll be in uh, Zephaniah and actually finishing it today. We're talking a little bit in our small groups. We plug this all the time. It's a wonderful time in general to just come and hang out. But uh, one of the things that, that benefits us with the way we have it set up is um, it, no, matter how, no matter how good of a preacher I may or may not be, and Mike's in the same boat, of course, there's things that we simply cannot communicate. There's not going to be enough time. No, nobody generally wants to sit here for five, six, seven hours to go through all of the depth, the connective tissue, the historical order of events, and this, that, and the other that really paints a full contextual picture of the Scripture. And of course, we're called to study on our own, and I hope everybody gets a chance to read in their, their Bible. But as we bounce back and forth between the Old and the New Testament, one of the things that kind of drives us is to fundamentally be able to connect how awesome Scripture is at buttressing up its own arguments uh, the theme is the same throughout the entire word. It's not a bunch of scattered stories that, that we have to work really hard to connect. We just don't have to do that. And, and it's, it's awesome because of it. So it's a very short book, Zephaniah, uh, three chapters, and that's it. Uh, each one of them is about 20 so verses. I mean, you could read it in an afternoon. You could probably read it in an hour. They'd be done with it. Uh, and in some regards, it makes it easy to preach because it's very straightforward. But the tricky part is, for me, I don't want to just talk about, hey, here's what the book says, and, and that's that. But a little bit more of the idea of how does this apply to us, and how do we know, you know, where do we see Christ in this story? We know that Christ was the Word, and He fulfilled it in its entirety. Um, and as we dig into this, I hope that everybody's able to follow along and see that, wow, even, even in a very small minor prophet book in the Old Testament, we see evidence of a huge amount of hope coming, even in the midst of this. So, uh, with that, as we capstone Zephaniah today, we'll be in chapter 3, last chapter, we'll read the entirety of it here, and, uh, and then we'll uh, pray and get into it together. If you have your Bibles, please uh, follow along. If not, use the screen. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed." For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. 
On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none of them shall, none of, none shall make them afraid." Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Zephaniah is a a book of of your judgment, your perfect, pristine, holy judgment, your patience, your grace, your willingness to to wait and do things on a timeline that maybe we don't understand, but we know is for our good, Lord. As we study this, help us not to get lost in either it doesn't matter to us or this applies to a group of people that... Uh, you know, is now long gone and forgotten, and we have a new covenant, and thus it doesn't matter, Lord. It does matter. Your word is powerful, all of it, every bit of it, even chapter 3 of Zephaniah, Lord. And in this chapter, we see a lot of hope, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of thinking about the future when, when God finally begins to reclaim what is his after, after he's been super patient waiting for the, the events of, that he has put in motion to unfold completely, Lord. Help us to be able to see that we are still part of that story that it is still unfolding, and that there is a future where eternity is, is going to be perfect and pristine forevermore, Lord. Thank you for that promise. It's in your sons, and we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we jump in, have you noticed the theme? I mentioned this a lot. Lots of judgment. Chapter 1 was judgment. Chapter 2, last week, we focused on the judgment against the nations. He called out four specific areas. This would have been very meaningful to the Israelites. Maybe not so much to us. Um, but here we see a little bit of judgment for Israel at the beginning, right? The, God's people, why he's a little annoyed with them and seems to this be also a running theme. But then we see that God is far from finished. After we get by the judgment and the description thereof, we see that God's got a plan that probably blew the minds of the Israelites, to be perfectly honest. They expect to dwell with God or God to dwell with them. But God's talking about all the nations of the earth. Everything. Being, being appropriated by God to give worship to God. We do want to note that God's anger is not arbitrary. It's very tempting to, and, and this is very common in our world because we don't necessarily know. Has anybody ever dealt with somebody, maybe a spouse, and I'm guilty of this, that's angry and you can tell, and they're not really talking about why they're angry, but you kind of know something's up, like, what's wrong? Nothing. Everything okay? Yep. But you know something's up, right? You don't know what it is. Maybe it's not a big deal. For me, a lot of times, it's something that maybe has annoyed me or bothered me, but it's not really worth getting into. It's a personal thing. I just need to work through it. But yes, I am annoyed. 
that I am angry. And maybe it's arbitrary. God's not like that. God's not like, I'm angry. God, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. God's telling us exactly why he's angry. And it's not because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed or because he just has it out for his creation. God is perfect and pristine, just, holy, righteous, you name it. If it's good, it's God. That's how this works. So when God's angry, it's for a good reason. I've heard that before, too, specifically for my parents. You know darn well why we're mad. Maybe I do. Chances are I do. And it's probably a real good reason that you're angry. I did something I shouldn't have done. That's where the Jews are. God's anger towards the nations is because of persecution of his people. He's mad at them because they've, they've done bad things to Israelites. God's anger towards his people is because they don't care about it. These nations have been set against God's people. They capture them. They hurt, hurt them and harm them. What does God's people do? Emulate them. Marry them. <laughs> Try to disperse out into them. These things, uh, <coughs> they give no credit to God. They get no fealty to God whatsoever. They do things their own way. And it's not just a person or two or even a tribe. The whole of Jerusalem is rotten and idolatrous. There's a theme here as well. When we see God time and time again begin to dispense hints of wrath, inevitably somebody says, but, you know, some people there are good. And then God has to remind us, there's not one good person there. Oh, there's got to be one. No, there's not. Now, there is a remnant when we talk about God's people. We know this to be true. But that remnant is on God's, uh, God maintains that list. The, the real naughty and nice list. That's God's list. We don't know it. And there could be entire cities that have no nice people and all naughties. And when God decides to eradicate them, that's God's business. Ironically enough, when God makes this known, the Israelites seem to want to glom on to that. They want to act like the people that God's sitting out to destroy. Start marrying them and having children and taking on their traditions and customs. Worshiping their gods, setting up new temples. Over and over and over. As God seeks to defend them from trouble, they seem to go headlong into it. Another thing that reminds me of my youth. But as we dive into this, we open up with woe to her. Woe to her is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice and accepts no correction. Stubbornness. She does not trust in the Lord, nor draws near to God. If this sounds familiar, it should. We talk about this a lot in our small groups. You read some of these things, and it sounds like, our nation, our state, our community, our families, our personal lives. I do not like to be corrected. I'll admit it. I'm trying to get better at it, but it's really hard. Because to be corrected means I must admit that I'm wrong. And I'm never wrong, so how could I be corrected? This is what my brain tells me. This is what Israel told them. We've got great ideas. Here's what God said. Here's what we're going to add on top of that. We know that it's okay because things are going pretty good. God missed a few of these. That's okay. We know. We got it short up. People are prideful and they tend to worship themselves. In Zephaniah's time, this is true. In our time, this is true. We know better than God over and over and over. If you look at the, the types of churches and the way that our organizations and things are put together today, it's specifically because we want to elevate mankind as high as possible. We want to do things that we think God can't even imagine us doing. We don't need God for this. We got the space because of the hard work of mankind. We invented rocketry. We went to the moon. We didn't just pray and God took us there. And we stop and we think that's it. That's what we've done. But what we fail to mention is the ability for fuels to burn and oxygen in the atmosphere. That's not us. 
Mankind didn't do any of that. God put all of this in place, all this capacity in place, and then we leverage it and think we're better than God. It's the same thing here. Their tools were much different than our tools today. But you can bet the same people, the, the, the same mindset of, hey, we took the tool of the Bible and we've turned it into something much more interesting and intriguing. We've added more rules and covenants, various packs and procedures and processes, organizations and things like this that aren't even in the Word because the Word's not quite sufficient enough. So now we have become the new gods. We took what God did, we've built upon it, now worship us, do what we say. God's telling him over and over again, that's not right. Do what I say. There's plenty of liberty to build rockets and fly to the moon. That's okay. But don't for a moment think that you did it without God. Don't for a moment. And here we see, just like today, the people get the leadership they deserve. If you ever want to see God call leadership out, the officials are roaring lions and the judges are wolves, consuming all they can as fast as possible. That's officials and judges. So that's the government, if you will, described as lions and wolves, consuming everything they can as quickly as possible. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody, but it does to me too, still today. I like the as fast as possible, leaving nothing till the morning. They don't even make sense for themselves. They'll starve themselves in the future by gorging themselves today. And guess who makes up the government, at least here in America? We do, right? These are men. This isn't some weird uh, construct that is completely foreign to the Israelites. They're part of it. But at least our prophets are okay, right? No, the prophets are fickle and treacherous, and the priests profane what is holy. That's pretty bad. And then it ends with... They do violence to the law. Now, if there's, if, there's, <laughs> if there's a way that I don't want to be described by God, it's one who does violence to the law. There is, if, if, we, if we try to take the notion of violence and just move it away from law, because that's tough to understand, right? Is it cutting the law? I don't think so. I can be in love with something, in love with a person. I can be ambivalent towards that person. I just don't care. They're there, I'm here, whatever. And then I can be violent towards that person. What violence implies here is a concerted effort to do harm to. These, these prophets and priests aren't just ignoring God's law. They've now perverted it. They have turned it into something. They've caused harm to it and thus God's people by leveraging it in that way. They've twisted the words of God into something it wasn't supposed to be. And by doing so, God says that is violence. It gives me chills. Chills to think about a world where we are doing violence to the law. Church, I'm telling you, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I know Michael backed me up on this. If we do violence to the word of God in this pulpit, come up here and smack me in my face and tell me. I have no interest in doing that. No interest in doing that. These folks, these prophets are fickle and treacherous. They're not ignorant. They're not, well, we don't know. We're trying our best. That's not doing violence. Right? If I'm trying to help somebody to get out of a burning vehicle and I break a shoulder, I wouldn't say I did violence to them. I'm trying to help them. But if I know that I set fire to the vehicle and what I really want to do is break their shoulder, well, that's fickle and treacherous. You've destroyed, like, you're a monster. That's what's going on here. They know the truth. They're covering it up and turning it into something it shouldn't be and then using that to harm God's people. And God is annoyed by it, as he should be. But God... After this little rant against the Israelites and how terrible things are, we see that God is still all good, 100%. It's not him. 
If anybody has any doubts that God's left them, God's abandoned them, God's turned the tables on them, that's why this stuff's being allowed to happen because God's gone away. He's changed the course of things. He hates us and he's going to just do harm to us. And out of pure delight, that's not true. He has never failed them. Never once. He's always there. Mercy's new every morning. Grace every morning. All this. God has not changed in that regard. But the shamelessness of God's people is terrible. It's abject. It is beyond. They, they have no shame. There's not a thing about them where they keep trying to glom back to God, to put God in the proper place. All they do over and over and over and over again, despite God's faithfulness, is rewarded with hostility and disdain. God is there. He's never gone. Who cares? Look, I've done something for you. I've helped your crops grow. I don't care. I hate him. I like a better God. We built a new temple. We're going to go to this other thing. We're going to sacrifice babies. We're going to put on makeup and jewelry like our enemies do because we want them to leave us alone. We want to be left alone. It has nothing to do with what God says. It's what we want to do. We know better. But we know God's faithfulness will prevail. As we've read through all these Old Testament books, we see God demonstrating his might countless times. And when he does, the people return to God for a moment. This is great in Zephaniah's time. It's the same here today. You'll see people that want prayer. They want to come in to the church when times are really tough. Something bad has happened, and I need prayer. I need somebody to come over and, and comfort me and tell me the truth of God. I want God to demonstrate his might. I want to feel peace that transcends understanding. I need it right now. And then that moment passes, and then we stray from God again and again and again. They stray from God. If you think I'm talking about other people, not myself, you're sorely mistaken. This is like the exact tale of my college career. I had really low moments in college, and I needed God badly, and I felt his presence. And then I got better about that stuff and had things to do. And I got to God when I got to him. Hey, thanks for the lift, right? Anybody ever had to have someone come and tow your car or change a tire or jump start it? In the moment when they're there, you need them. And you're thankful for them. Does anybody ever keep in touch with the person on AAA that did that for you? No. It's a service rendered. Thank you. I paid for that. You came and did it. I'm thankful you were here. Don't get me wrong. Very thankful. But there's no perpetual worship that goes on beyond that. And it's because they don't warrant that. They helped me one time. We had a contract. But God is different. God's not AAA. I don't pay a fee to God and he shows up when I need him because my tires run flat. My car won't start. God made the car and the tire and the battery and me. He owns it all. It's all a gift. It's all grace. The fact that my car starts or doesn't start is irrelevant to whether God is God. Once we stray, we elevate ourselves to God-like status and ruin comes. I mean, this is like, put it on repeat. Here we go again. Boom, boom, boom. God is trying so hard to make them understand there is nothing on this earth like him. Nothing. No other God, no other temple, no other person, no other country, no other king. Nothing. Nothing compares to God. He is the best. But if mankind can convince themselves they did it then, we do it now, that we know more, we've got a better way, then we can keep God around, but we're going to boat some things on there that are very, very critical. And once that happens, inevitably, the part that was God, that's the part that gets put in the ground so we can see the rest of it. But, you know, he's, he's the foundation. We just can't see him anymore because we've built so much on top. And this, this will lead us to the, well, why doesn't God just questions, right? I'm right there with you. Well, why doesn't he just end it? Let's go. Clean it up. Let's go. You can bet the Jews are asking the same thing. Hey, you're talking about destroying our enemies. When's this going to happen? And we see in 3.8, 
Uh, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. God's decision is to gather and punish the nations. But it's not the end of the story, even after the earth is consumed. Now, when we see things like to the ends of the earth and all the earth will be affected by God or destroyed, it doesn't necessarily mean at this time that he's going to incinerate the entire earth and everything on it, because clearly he's alive. But it's more of the scope of his wrath. There will be no area of the planet that will be left ungod wrathed if you will. He's everywhere. It's all happening all over. Not total inimitable destruction of the planet at this time necessarily, but when God starts to punish and gather the nations, he's punishing and gathering all the nations. Not just a few here and a couple over there. It's all going to happen. But that's not just the end of the story. He's not just going to punish. He's going to restore. Their speech will be changed to pure speech by God's wrath. I loved reading this part. I loved reading it today. I loved reading it when I was putting the sermon together. The haughty will be removed, leaving a humble and meek people. They will seek and find the Lord, and there will be peace. All these elements that were ruining things will be taken away. Things will be good. All nations, not just God's people. Yes, God's people. God will restore Israel. Israel's enemies will have been handled. And I'll tell you, this was by far their biggest desire at the time. If you look at Israel's history and why they do the things that they do, it's because they want to be leaders. They want to be a dominating world force like every other country. They forget that God is God and will do with them what he sees fit. And once the time is right, because of his word, will absolutely make everybody a footstool. They want it now. We want it now. Let's go to war now. We want a king now. We want a mighty army now. Now, 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 now. But eventually they will have a truly righteous, perfect, and strong king in the Lord. Everything that they want, they will have. Everything that we want, we will have. This is total redemption of Israel and the nations by God alone. As he's reading through this, (coughs) God does absolutely use Israel to go to war with other nations. No question about that. But in this case, we don't see a lot of talk about that. It's all, I'm going to make you a mighty army. And you're going to go steamroll the world, you know, with a massive war effort. That's not what's happening here. This is, hey, get behind me, and uh, I'm going to go out here and take care of this. I'm going to come back and take care of you, (laughs) right? Right? This is breaking up a fight that should never have happened on the uh, playground. Right? Go go sit in the car. Oh, oh, you guys are going to get it. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, we're all going to get it, but you're going to get it double when I get home. That's what's happening here. I'm going to deal with this. Not you. I'm done with you. You guys can't get it together. I'm going to take care of this. I am God and I'll see it through by God alone. So that leads us to the final four. Pray for stubbornness to cease. He talked about a nation that wouldn't be corrected. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't seek. Why? They're stubborn. Church, that's us in many regards. Pray for it to cease. Pray for brokenness for the lost. Pray for mindfulness of our sanctification, of our getting holy, of our getting closer and more godly. And pray for the hopefulness of our eternity. So first, pray for stubbornness to cease. This one's pretty clear. I probably could just put that up there in big, bold letters. But sometimes these verses that we're studying mirror our world so closely, it's terrifying to me. It's beyond ironic or interesting that what he's talking about, the mindset, not necessarily specific mechanisms, right? We're not dealing with Middle Eastern politics, uh, you know, in in an ancient Israel area. But the mindset, the frustrations, what people are doing and how they're acting is so close to what's going on today. If it seems like we've learned nothing, that may be true. 
As a people, I would agree. We are right exactly where these folks were at this time. We know better as a nation. We know better as a country, as a church in many regards. Woe to us if we feel that way. But it's very, very common. And take it from a stubborn person. I'm exceptionally stubborn. This cannot be done without God. If there's any forward progress in my stubbornness, of being more open and understanding, trying to communicate better, listen to people, take correction, it's because God has changed my heart. I want to fight anybody that disagrees with me typically. It doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. If you're strong enough, you're always right. That's the way I kind of remember growing up, right? That's what, we, what you say goes if nobody else can say anything, if they're, you know, mouse-wired shit, right? Well, that's not the way to do it. God could smite us all today. His hand could come from the sky and just like, start molding the earth into a baseball and throw it in the sun. And it's over. He's not chosen to do that, despite our stubbornness. But we got to know we can't unstubborn ourselves no matter how hard we try. I'm telling you, church, I have tried and failed countless times to act better. We were joking about a church that has on their sign, Jesus is coming, act busy. Man, you want the story of my life before I started really reading Scripture? It's that. Jesus is coming, act like you're not stubborn. Act like you're not a misogynist. Act like you're not a jerk. Act like you're not consumed by lust. Just act apart. Put on something nice. Comb your hair. Smile. Thank you. No, I'm great. No sin over here. Good. Is Jesus coming? Okay. Is he gone? Great. But back to the sin. He's back. Hold on. Suit and tie. Button it up. That was my whole life. Emulating salvation so everybody would get off my back. The difference here is that's what they're doing. God knows it because he's God. If you think you're getting one by God because you're too stubborn to change, you're not. He knows exactly what's going on, and there's no secret here. Pray for that to cease. You'll notice I don't say stop being stubborn. If I say that and you do that, that means nothing. Stop cursing. Okay, I'll stop cursing. I don't know that my beliefs about cursing have changed, but I'll stop doing it. What does it mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything. If you want something to stop that you feel is, is, is taking away from the glory of the, the glory of your life going to God, something like being stubborn in this case, we've got to be praying for that. We've got to be working together for that. God's got to initiate that change. I want to stop being a stubborn person. I don't just want to act like I'm not stubborn. I don't want to be outwardly agreeable, but inside, oh, golly, I can't believe I've got to do this. Right? I say, oh, shoot. But in my head, I didn't say shoot. No, in my head, I said 19 other words because I'm so angry. Because I'm still cursing, but I'm not cursing out loud because I was told to stop cursing. The, the real problem there is anger and lack of control. That's what I need to be praying about. It's the same here. We must have new hearts and minds. They've got to be renewed by God in every regard. You can take stubbornness out and take any negative aspect, but stubbornness is what Zephaniah is talking about here. New hearts and minds renewed by God. Not renewed by best efforts or self-help or by magical uh, laying of hands or spoken words or any of that stuff. It's got to come from God. God can work through all kinds of stuff, but it's got to be God that does it. Only then will we accept his correction. When we come to God's correction in our life, this is not an idea of like acting right and filling out the paperwork and stamping it. There's not going to be any of that. God knows the condition of our hearts and in our prayer lives. When it comes to engaging with God and feeling the Holy Spirit move in our lives, things will change. We will want to be better, not because of our own volition, but because God has changed that in us. Only then will we not profane what is holy, and only then will we see, cease violence against the law. I would stipulate that it is violence against the law if I say one thing and do another. Hypocrisy, it is a horrible thing in the church. 
Do not smoke or drink. And then someone sees you smoking or drinking? Wait a minute. What else is a lie? What else doesn't matter? Rules for thee, but not for me. Like, what's going on here? Now, everything that you said is questioned. We've got to be real careful with that kind of stuff. Real careful with that kind of stuff. When it comes to the, the, to the law or to the word of God, we want to be very careful on how we handle it. Very, very diligent uh, and, 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 and accountable for that sort of thing. Next, pray for brokenness for the lost. This is a twofold statement, and it's purposefully unclear. Smiley face is there because I did it on purpose. Yes, we want to pray that the lost are broken, so they will depend on God. Dependence on God is, very, is much, much easier if there's nothing else to depend on in the world around you. So yeah, we pray for that. Hey, lost people, get yourself in a place where you've got to find who God is. But we also pray that our hearts are broken. Pray for their brokenness and pray for our brokenness towards them. We have been charged to bring them the good news. And if we treat the lost of this world like the Israelites treated the nations, we're in big trouble. If we see them as enemies and just want God to destroy them, we're not doing, that's not what we're called to do. That is not our charge. Our charge is to bring them good news. And if we show up with this attitude like, well, I'm here because God made me come, right? Everybody see those, like, there's a joke like a buddy shirt that has two neck holes and two arms and you're supposed to put siblings in it if they can't get along. And it's like they have to sit in the buddy shirt together until they act nice. That's not what we're told to do here. We're not told to walk around with a gospel buddy shirt and find us a lost person that we can't stand and put it on and be like, are they saved yet? Can we take this off, God? We're supposed to be like, I really want to lead you to God. I want to tell you about the Holy Spirit. I want to bring you to the Word, and I want to study together, and I pray that the, the Holy Spirit changes your life and begins the process. I want that for you. Because without it, you have no hope. You are completely lost. You do not know the truth. And eternity for you is a dark and dismal place. And I want better. My heart breaks for you. We have, if we have been charged to bring them the good news, we cannot bring them good news if, if we have our hearts set against them. If we think that we're better than them. If we think that we're in a, a special group that's been anointed by God in a way that they could never be. That's not, a, that's not a, at all what's going on here. When God saves another person, it's no different than my salvation. We are equivalent. We are brethren. All of us covered with the same blood of Christ. There's no priority here. There's no holier than thou, for real. But a lot of times when it comes to praying for brokenness for loss, like, yeah, well, they need to get their act together. They need to get to church. Yeah, but they don't know they need to get to church. You know that. You've got to tell them that. Or they're going to say, why do I need to come to church? Well, you've got to hear the good news. No, you don't. You don't have to come to church to hear the good news. You should be able to tell them the good news right there. Right there. Open your phone. Grab it out of there. Boom. Here's John 3.16. Start there. It's simple. Everyone knows it pretty much. Say it. I believe it. It's true. It'll change your life forever. How? How's it going to change my life forever? What a wonderful thing. If you can make somebody ask who, what, when, where, why, or how, that's a great door to absolutely walk right in. Get talking about it. You don't need to bring in the church. When they come to church, we want to be able to, to, to build them up in their faith. If they hear for the gospel the first time here, great. But they don't need to hear it from me. They can hear it from anybody here today. Third, we want to pray for mindfulness of our sanctification. We want to be rinsed and hung to dry like clothing. That is not how sanctification works. It's not like, hey, I'm saved, whoosh, and you're clean, and uh, you're drying, and then eventually you're good. Our hearts and minds are part of God's redemptive process. It will take time. We will have setbacks. We will get frustrated. We will be crying out to God. We will be crying out to God to kill us because we can't seem to do it right, and we're so tired of it. I'm so fed up. I'm so sad. I'm so despondent. 
I'm so isolated and alone, the world said against me, where are you, God? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you with me? If, if anyone, anything I'm saying right now is I'm saying to you, please go read the Psalms and listen to King David. Whine and cry like some weakling that can't do anything. That's exactly what he's doing throughout the, almost the entire book. And it's in Scripture for a reason. We are supposed to read that and say, oh, I would never act like that. Like, well, maybe you ought to start acting like that. He's talking to God in a raw, real way. Why? Because he knows he is not going to get any better. It's not getting any better. He's impatient for God's sanctification, yet also waiting patiently for God. And that's a problem for us. It's supposed to be. Those troubles, that turmoil in our life, we seek God during those times. Our hearts and our minds are going to be part of that process. We should be mindful of our own need for growing in God. We shouldn't feel like we're going to be saved and cleansed right away. Those are stories the churches love to share. I'll be honest. I've, I love them. I went to a church. I heard the gospel. My life was changed. I haven't smoked. I picked up a cigarette since. I don't miss it at all. Never touched a drop of, of alcohol. Quit doing drugs. Stopped going to strip clubs. All of it ended that one day. I've never had temptation since. If true, what a miracle in your life. But be very careful that if that's how it worked for you, but there's 18 other people out there that have known God for 15 years and still struggle with alcoholism, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean that God's not working in their lives. This process is God's. It's a redemptive process. Sanctification is not a clockwork schedule. It doesn't work the same for everybody. And when it comes to that, we want to be more peaceable and holy, not less. As we feel like we're getting holier, we shouldn't be getting haughtier. We should be getting less haughty. We should be able to look at other people that are still struggling with various aspects of sanctification. Maybe they're not even worried about it yet and coming to them with a broken heart. I've been where you are. I still struggle with it to this day, but God is faithful. He has never abandoned me and he won't abandon you. When we're mindfulness, when we have mindfulness, when we are mindful of our sanctification, our need to grow, our desire to grow, when we read Zephaniah, that's what he's trying to remind them. I'm going to sanctify you. It's all going to be made okay. It's all going to be made okay, but you have something to do right now, and that is keep God in a proper place. Which is, brings us to our last point. Pray for hopefulness for our eternity. Unlike the first two chapters, this book and this chapter end on a very high note. Eternity with the Lord is real, and it is coming. For us, for them, for the sa same, same eternity, all good. Our hope should be in God's promises, not our hard work. When it comes to eternity, we are not going to have a hand in that other than to say, uh, you know, we were, we were part of the story. We were chosen by God to be, to be part of something that is unbelievable in its canon. There won't be anybody there that's like, you know, um, I didn't really get it, but I worked so hard that uh, I made the grade. And uh, so here I am because of my hard work. You know, God was sanctifying me, but it wasn't going quick enough, and so I took some steps, and that really turned the tide. <laughs> that there will be no claims like that in eternity. We have claims like that here. People that bootstrap themselves and go out there and do the you know, fight the good fight and get lucky in many regards, but whatever, they're very successful, or they're very rich, or they're very fit, or they're healthy, or wealthy, or smart, and they look and they see a cavalcade of effort. That I went to the gym, and I went to college, and I did this, and I did that. That's true. But my ability to take a breath is not of me. <laughs> that stops the moment my brain is severed from my body. That's being held together by miraculousness, not dumb luck. Everything that I'm ever going to do is because of the grace of God. 
That's the hopefulness of eternity, that God's grace takes us there. It's not hard work. Do we have things to do? Yes. We will work in this place. But let us work for the Lord, knowing that what we do now is, is helping to bring others into the kingdom, doing what we've been commanded to do, share the good news, spread the hopefulness. Talk about God's promises and how much more important they are than our hard work, and that our hard work is only a means to an end in, in glorifying God. We know this because there were probably people that have been saved, have worked their whole lives, the Billy Graham types, dedicated their lives to the Lord. They're in the same place the thief on the cross was. Today, it'll be in paradise. Me and Billy Graham, we're all going to be there. I had 50 years of service to the Lord. I had 15 seconds of saying, telling this other guy to knock it off. I think he's innocent. Same. Their hard work did not matter to their salvation. It's God's gig. So what about us? Let's recommit ourselves to the Lord's work. And the Lord's work is vast. Right? The, the harvest is many and the workers are few. This is all true. There's so much that we could be doing. And we're all in this together and working together is best. I'd love to say to everybody, hey, let's just go it alone and you know, figure it out from here. That way you don't have to worry about dependencies. But that's not the way it's put together. We're called to gather together. We're called to be a church. We're called to pray for one another and work together on these kinds of things. Let's share the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost. If there's somebody that doesn't know who Christ is, let's let them know who Christ is. Will they accept it? No. Will they reject us? Most likely. Christ said, the world's going to hate you like they hated me. We shouldn't be surprised if someone says, I don't want to hear about that. I used to go to church and I don't anymore. I don't believe. I don't believe in God. I'm angry that you even brought it up to me. How dare you? I'm sorry, but I've got to tell you the truth, man. All right. I don't like it. And at those times, that's where we allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength. There's a, there's a joy that comes from being in the presence of the Lord. If you've, if you've ever had an opportunity to maybe sit in a worship scenario or, or hear a testimony, uh, I remember a moment when I heard somebody preach in a foreign language with an interpreter. And I was floored that this guy was preaching a sermon like two sentences at a time so that the translator could communicate it. But the thoughts were so put together and so apt and so rich that he was able to communicate in like two sentences at a time over a course of about 30 minutes how awesome God was. And I received, I was blown away by that whole process, how that worked. There was joy in the Lord in that moment. And I know that people that speak that native tongue could now enjoy the same thing that I could because of the work of two individuals, but mainly and 100% without the help of the Lord, none of that is possible. Let's allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength this week and beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for finishing another book. Lord, it's great to, to complete these things and be able to see the entire, the entire book of Zephaniah, read it over the course of three weeks, study it together, Lord, see how your faithfulness shines through, your plans, your timing shines through, Lord, your grace, your mercy. It's not about us. It's not about the Israelites, Lord. You tolerate us and you're patient and you tarry the end of the world so that more people can know the truth, hear the truth, experience the joy of the Lord in this place. Lord, help us not to lose heart or lose sight of our mission. Help us not to get so comfortable where we are and thinking that everything's on cruise control and if we just put up enough signage, that it's going to do the worship, it's going to do the ministry for us, the witnessing for us. I don't need to tell you about the good news. It's plastered over here on the wall. Just read it for yourself and join us if you'd like. Lord, you saw a better way to do that. And we, we want to do that via relationships, communication, being there for one another, talking to the lost, engaging the lost, telling them the truth with joy in our hearts, not anger or disdain.
Lord, I pray as this week unfolds for us that you'll give us some opportunities to do that, Lord. And maybe some of these words from Zephaniah will rattle around in our heads as we try to figure out what to say or maybe we shouldn't bother. But time is short. And as we try to become better and more like you, the world will notice. They may not like it at first. But as you begin to change our lives and sanctification begins, and that too gives us an opportunity to share what's going on. Oh, you're working real hard. Well, not really, but God's changed me a little at a time because I think he knows better than me. Thank you, Lord, for making it not about or dependent upon us. I am so thankful for that, Lord. And thank you for your work on the cross. It changed my life and the lives of so many others forever. Senior sons, I pray. Amen.